You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjacks.com. So, Easter, the Super Bowl of all Sundays. Well, I was going to, never mind. But uh, um, recently, uh, one of the fastest growing sports uh, in the world, in our country especially, is, is CrossFit. And CrossFit, people love it or hate it. Um, I recently, in the last year or so, you probably can tell I've been doing CrossFit. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and there's this thing called the Open, the CrossFit Open. And basically what the Open is, is that you can register for the Open all over the world. So there's like over 100,000 people in this competition. And there's five different weeks of competition, okay? And in the competition, what you do is on Wednesday night at 8 o'clock or 7.30, they post whatever the workout for that week is. And so you have from Wednesday until Sunday night at like seven or eight to post your score. And then you post your score and then it goes online and you can see how you rank in the world. I mean, it's crazy. Or you can like break it up by age groups or divisions or whatever. And the title is the fittest on earth. And so the goal is to be the fittest man or woman on earth. I mean, that's a great title. Why wouldn't you wanna be a part of that? Well, I, I haven't been able to do it this year because I hurt my shoulder or I would be competing for the fittest on earth. But this past Friday, I was able to do the workout that they had, that the whole world was doing. The whole world was doing this workout. And I thought, well, I'm gonna do this workout and then I'm gonna go online and see how I rank with all the other men, you know, 75,000 plus men in the world. I was pretty excited about it. So I did the workout. I mean, I worked hard. I was about to have a heart attack afterwards. I was super excited about it. Some lifting, some toe touches. I was like, man, I'm gonna crush this. And I go online and I discovered that I was 16,136th place. And I was wondering why people aren't like talking about how they're doing in the gym. Because no one wants to hear about being in 16,136th place. It doesn't even sound like that should be real or legal in, the, in competitive sports. Like, how are you doing? I'm in 16,136th place. I mentioned this to Laura last night, my beautiful, encouraging wife. And she said, so let me make sure I understand this. She says, so what you're saying is that of all the people in CrossFit who have signed up, that there are 16,134 better than you? I'm like, yeah, honey. She's like, oh, wow, great job. Way to represent the Fowlers. But anyway, <laughs> you know, as individuals, I think, you know, there's something in us that, that wires us to compete. You know, and even as a non-competing person, you're competing with not competing. So anyway, we're all kind of wired that way. We're all kind of, we, we want to we see how we measure up to people. We want to we compare ourselves as athletes, as musicians, and, and it carries on to the rest of the areas of our life, you know? And what happens, though, is we end up, two, one thing, two, two things can happen. One is, like me, you feel like a failure. You know, I killed it, I'm 16,136th place. We feel like a failure, or let's say we're in the top 10, and then we feel like, man, that's pretty good. Um, and then we become prideful. So our two responses to success or fa- or is either failure or the lack of success is either failure or it's pride. That's kind of what we're left with. But we see this kind of pouring over into our life, our, our, our need to, or this thing inside of us that uh, wants to see how we're doing compared to other people. We do this whenever we get married. We compare a marriage to other marriages. 
We compare, if we go to college, we go to further education, we compare schools to other schools. We compare our, our, our basketball teams. You know, when Florida beats Michigan today, it's going to be a glorious day. Easter will be complete at that point. Anyway, but we compare our sport athletic teams. We compare when we have children, we start to compare our kids. Yesterday at Hollybrook, I was walking with a mom who had a three-year-old, and we looked over at the swing set, and her three-year-old son was swinging, and she goes, he's so advanced. No three-year-old can swing by himself. No three-year-old can pump. She's just so excited and full, proud of her son who was swinging on, swinging on his own. But why is it that we're wired like that? What is it inside of us that we're really after, that we're really designed for, that I think God created us this way. I think that, that all of us are created uh, wanting to fit in and be a part of something larger than ourselves. And what we believe is, is that we compete well, we compare well, then people will like us, that people will love us, that people will accept us, right? And so we do all that we can to impress other people, to show other people how good we are, to, 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 to really work and make an effort for the greater purpose, which, which is we wanna belong, we wanna fit in. And that's not a bad thing, God has wired us that way. God has wired us to want to be a part of a bigger story. God has wired us to want to be a part of a bigger family. And the place, the family that should be the best at this, inviting people in to something greater, inviting people in to something more, should be the church. The church should be the most welcoming, the most encouraging, and the most generous family that there is. Why? Because we know more than anybody that all the striving and all the success and all the friends that we try to earn will eventually leave us feeling empty, unfulfilled, or unhappy. We've experienced this previous way of living and we've come to the end of our rope. We've come and we're exhausted, we're worn out, we feel beat up, rejected by the world, and we've ended up in front of Jesus somehow. And we discover this about Jesus. And this is what makes us, should make us, the most loving, encouraging, welcoming family there is. As we find out, we discover that Jesus, not because of anything that we've done, that Jesus not only loves us, but he really, really, really likes us. He likes us. Brian taught on that last week that God not only loves us, but he really, really, really likes you as you are. We come to him broken, worn out, beat up, and tired, exhausted, tired of the effort, tired of doing everything that we can do. And he says, I love you the way that you are. And not only do I love you the way that you are, I've made you and like you the way that you are. It's hard to believe that. I think it's hard to believe that truth about how God sees us Not because it's not true from his end, but because of how the church has miscommunicated that on our end. And people come to the church and they end up feeling the two ways I talked about earlier. They come and experience a church that's full of pride. And the response from them is they feel like a failure. Why would I want to be a part of a family that's going to make me feel worse about myself? This is what Easter is. I'm going to prove this to you today. I'm going to try to at least. Easter is a reminder to us all the death that Jesus has defeated death and that we are invited into the best life possible with him, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he has done for us. 
that our brokenness, our selfishness, our emptiness, and all the failed attempts in this life to find life to the full, the best life possible, to be a part of a family, has been, has been nailed to a cross, and it's dead, it's gone. And that Jesus invites us, when he rose on Easter, to rise with him. That we are a new creation is what the Bible says. When we rise with Christ, when we come to Christ, that we are a new creation. The old person is dead now. The new one is completely loved, completely accepted by the Father, 100%. No more striving. There's no such thing as good Christians and bad Christians. God loves us, period. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about the Father, that that's how he sees you, that that's how he feels about you all the time, that he only has love for you, that he only has affection for you, that the story of the cross, the story of Jesus is about him coming to rescue and save you. That's what Easter's about. I'm gonna read from a passage in John this morning that I think communicates these, these, these things. It's not a likely passage for Easter, but it's the one I felt like God gave me to share with us. It's happening, the second chapter of John, verses 13, it says this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not, take, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, we pray that you would come now through the power of your spirit and open our hearts and our minds to understand what this means for us and for you in our relationship with you. Amen. So this is what's going on here, is that the Jews are celebrating this week-long feast, okay? And in this feast, there's Passover. And basically, if you were Jewish, wherever you lived in Israel, you were commanded to come to Jerusalem and, and, you know, to, to... to, to make sacrifices, to pay the temple tax, to come together as a family. It's a big family, big happy family, and to remember what God had done to rescue you, okay? And so that's what's going on. And so everyone's kind of descending on, on Jerusalem doing this, okay? And they all had to pay a temple tax when they got there, and they all had to make sacrifices when they got there. And so what would happen is that the Jewish people, the rulers at the time, would created this system, okay? And this system would work like this. It's because people were traveling from far away uh, and, and they, 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 would, they would be bringing all kinds of different money with them, okay? And the money had to be transferred into temple money because only temple money could be used to pay your offering. And so what they would do is they'd set up a table and they'd have a bunch of money on it. You'd bring your money and then they wouldn't give you an equal exchange. They would charge you a little bit more and make money on the money that you were exchanging. And yeah, you're right. So they could kind of, you, were, you had to pay the temple tax. And so they were kind of like in a position to take advantage of, and they did, the people who were coming in. 
So that's what's going on with the money thing. The other thing that was happening is that people were coming and they had to bring animals. Or, or, or for some people, it was, the distance was so far that they would be like, forget it. I'm not going to bring my own animal. I'm just going to buy an animal when I get there. And so what they had set up in the Gentile court, the, the outer court, are animals everywhere. It'd been like a stockyard. It'd been been animals everywhere, okay? And so if you had an animal, you'd bring it, and then the religious people would look at your animal, and they'd be like, uh-uh, that animal, he got a jacked up hoof. See that? That's not, offer, that's not acceptable to the Lord. And so they would like say, you can't kill that animal. He's not good for killing. He's got a jacked up hoof. That doesn't honor the Lord. And so again, they would take advantage of people and they'd make them buy their livestock and they'd make money off of them. Or people would come who were coming from far away. They were like, I'm not bringing a flock of doves with me from wherever I've been to wherever I'm going. They'd be crazy. I got to feed them the whole way. They're pooping everywhere. When I get to Jerusalem, I'm just going to buy some doves. And what would they do? They'd overprice. They'd charge them an exorbitant amount. I mean, they said that doves that would be worth nickels would be charged $4 for it. That's the kind of rate increase that they're experiencing, okay? And so, Jesus rolls up on this scene, right? With his disciples, his mom, his brother, he's coming in, he just turned water into wine, everything's good. He rolls up, and he sees this, and this makes him so angry, so angry at what he sees. There's three things that I think make Jesus angry. There's probably other things, too, because I, you know, I don't know everything Jesus thinks. I know most, but anyway, you know, first thing that Jesus sees that makes him angry, that reflects his character, is that, you know, people are being made to feel like what they have to offer God isn't good enough. You know, they're bringing their animals, they're bringing the best that they have, animals that they've cultivated, that they've chosen to bring as a sacrifice to the Lord, they're bringing these and they're being told basically, your sacrifice isn't good enough for God. How does, how that make you feel? You know, you know, little Billy, the Billy goat, you're going to kill. You're already sad. Kids are crying the whole way. Where are we taking Billy, Dad? We're going to kill him. Sacrifice him. I mean, it's already a sad trip, folks. You get there, and then you're made to feel like, yeah, Billy, your goat, your friend, your little, your eighth member of your family, he's not good enough. So the good news is you can take him back home. The bad news is, here's Bobby. That's going to cost you, though. Bobby's going to cost you. If you want to deal with your sin, you got to buy Bobby. And so Jesus rolls up and he sees this. People being made to feel that they, what they have isn't acceptable, that they aren't acceptable, that their sacrifice isn't acceptable to the Lord. And that just eats at Jesus. And again, it just made me think, gosh, church, how have we done at this? When people experience us, do we make them feel like they aren't acceptable? Do we make them feel that they got to get cleaned up before they go to Jesus? They got to get their life in order before they come to church? I hope not. It makes Jesus really angry. He gets really angry when he sees this and upset. The second thing is that people are being taken advantage of by God's servants. People that God has entrusted to to steward well the temple, to bring people into worship, are taking advantage of people. People who are coming to worship, wanting to and needing to experience God's love and provision are being taken advantage of. And that was always God. You see, God's design for Israel was always that they'd be like a signpost, right? And so other nations, other people who were not Jewish would see this God who was loving, this God who was merciful, this God who was providing for them. They would see how he's interacting with his people and they would be drawn to this living God. And basically, when they show up on the scene, the exact opposite's happening. 
People who were entrusted, the Jewish people who were entrusted to steward the love, the grace, the mercy of God to the world because of their pride were preventing other people from experiencing it. And that made Jesus really angry. It makes Jesus really angry when those he has entrusted with his spirit, with his love, with his grace, us. When we, instead of inviting people in to experience his love and his grace and his mercy, instead of being a signpost, we become a sign that says stop. And that makes Jesus really angry. But the third thing that I want to spend a little time unpacking is that this was all happening in what was called the court of the Gentiles, the outer court. And this was a place that was reserved for non-Jews to come and worship God. And so basically Jesus rolls up on this scene and he sees this outer court, this Gentile court, that the Israel people, the Jewish people were instructed to build for people who were not Jewish. So as, as they did experience God's love, as they did see the goodness of God, that they too would have a place to come and worship Jesus or worship the Father. They would have a place to come and be with God. And so not only, not only is this place being taken away from them, they're being prevented from worshiping there, but there's animals, filthy animals in a place that was reserved for them. It'd be kind of like coming home and finding your dirty, nasty, wet dog laying on your new white sheets on your bed. You'd be pissed, wouldn't you? Dang it, I shouldn't have said that. Visitor service. You'd be angry. You would be angry. You would be angry. Jesus was angry at this. He was angry when he saw this. According to the prophet Isaiah 56, 7, he says, God wanted his house to be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's desire, what made Jesus angry, is that he wanted everyone to be welcomed into his temple. He wanted everyone to have a place to come and worship him. As the world would see his goodness, his mercy, his love, his protection of Israel, they'd be drawn to him. They'd be drawn to worship him. But the Jewish people, because of their pride, excluded others from knowing God. In the process, missed God themselves. And that's what happens, folks. That's what happens when we get filled with pride. When we, the church, the people that know God, become prideful and start comparing our lives to other people's lives. Start trying to work again to gain God's favor. We start working to make ourselves look good. We start to operate less like a loving family and more like a religious institution. And what happens is we miss Jesus and we prevent others from coming to know him and experience his love. And I don't think we mean to push people away or make people feel like they don't measure up. But we create, the danger is that we create this culture where we've forgotten about grace. We've forgotten, we've forgotten how much Jesus loves us and that, when we, that we, like everyone else, came to him at the end of our rope and that there was nothing that we could do to earn his love, to earn his affection, to be in relationship with him. It was only because of what Jesus had done for us, died on a cross and rose to give us life. It's only because of the work of Christ. 
There's a new TV show, reality show called Preacher's Daughters. Don't tell me if you see that. I don't want to know. But they should have, I could, I'm thinking about starting one called Preacher's Sons. Because my kids are so awesome. They are. But um, this, this show, Preacher's Daughters, basically this is the premise of the show. It's like they have these three families and the fathers are all preachers. And then it follows their daughters around and you see things that their daughters are doing they're, you know, it's just brutal. It's painful to watch. It's very painful to watch. And, um, and one of the daughters is, um, I, just, I, remember, I was just flipping through. I don't watch it. I was just flipping through. <laughs> and it stopped. And, and the whole time I'm thinking, I hope my children don't feel this way about me, you know. And, and this daughter says, one, one sister is talking to her little sister, and her sister's in this relationship that, uh, you know, the father's really unhappy about. And the little sister, and, and, and the older sister says to the little sister, she says, she says, what, what, why are you still trying, why, why do you desire to be pure? Like, why are you still working? Like, why, why is it such a big deal to be pure, you know, to, to be in a, in a relationship with your boyfriend and be pure or whatever? And, and this is her response to her daughter. Her response to the daughter is, this younger daughter says, she says, you know, I just want to, when I get to heaven, I want God to tell me that he's proud of me. Oh, it killed me. It killed me. Because it's God's love for us as we are and who we are that is what's so beautiful about Jesus. That we don't have to get ourselves cleaned up. That he loves us as we are, where we are and how we are. And it's this love that transforms us, not our effort. And, and, and the whole show is created around this premise of this tension that the, that the pastors create for their families, this image that they have to live up to. And if they don't, then God's not proud of you, that God doesn't love you, and he certainly doesn't like you. I think when we first come to know Jesus, we're very aware of his grace, that we have been included. And we're excited that Jesus wants to include us, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. But as we grow in our relationship with him, we start to compare ourselves again to other people. And we forget the grace, that grace not only brings us into the kingdom, it's only through grace that allows us to grow in our relationship with God. It's only grace that allows us to grow with God. Moving on in the story, the disciples see all this happening. And they say this, he says this. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. They see this passion and this zeal for Jesus that Jesus has for his father's house to be a place of worship, a place for people to come. But in this next little chunk of scripture here, just real quickly, what we see Jesus demonstrating, I think, to us is what he's really zealous for. What, what Jesus is, is Jesus really passionate about the temple, the building, is that really what he's passionate about? Is that really what the father's after? Is that really why Jesus came to die? Is to preserve a building? It goes on and says this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I mean, there is tremendous symbolism going on here. I mean, amazing 
pictures of what's, what, what you see and feel and can touch in the real world and then a spiritual dimension that Jesus is speaking to. And what's happening is that the Jewish people are so caught up in what their life looks like on the outside. They're so caught up in the religious game that they've been playing. They're so caught up in competing, making themselves look good, that they miss the deeper implications of what Jesus is saying. They miss what the Father is really passionate about, what he really is after, what he really loves. And we see this, we see this, I don't want to go into all of the, the different words, but we see basically there's three words here, break down, which can mean tearing down of a building, but it can also mean the destruction of a human body. We see the word sanctuary being used. It can be, made, it can be, it can be talking about the physical sanctuary, but the same word is also used to indicate, indicate a physical frame or a man's body where the spirit dwells. And finally, we see Jesus use this word raise up, talking about it could mean, it could be, Jesus could be talking about raising the building up, rebuilding, the reconstruction of a building, but the word is also used to mean the resuscitation of life coming back into a body that's dead. And so with sadness, I think, with sadness for people who become prideful, who have known grace but have lost touch with it, with sadness, he says something like this, is what he's trying to communicate to the Pharisees and to us. Jews or the church, by your wickedness, one day you too will fashion a whip and will break down the sanctuary of my body, the perfect temple. In doing so, you will destroy this temple, what this temple stands for and invites people into worship and intimacy with my father. However, in three days, I will raise up that sanctuary as I am raised from the dead. The result of this resurrection will lead to my father establishing a new temple with a new family, my church. It will be filled with people whom my father loves and is filled with my spirit, speaking and making each of them a temple too, of which he is most zealous. It will be filled with people whom my father loves and is filled with my spirit, making each of them a temple too, of which he is most zealous. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's zeal for you, his love for you, his desire for you to be a part of his family led him to crushing his son the perfect temple, destroying the perfect temple so that you could be made perfect in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying to us. That's what the Father is most excited about. You are what he is most zealous about. You are the reason that he killed Jesus. You are the reason that Jesus rose from the dead to find life, to become a part of his family. That's crazy. Do you believe that, that the Father, what the Father has done to come and rescue you? Each of us, an opportunity to have the living God, literally, as we choose to follow Jesus, to live inside of us, to have life to the full because of him. The length the Father has gone, we just, we get a glimpse of it. In the story of Nemo, 
there's this scene I'm going to show you, and you're going to cry. Like Nemo, in this story, Nemo has basically exhausted all of his efforts to get out of the fish tank. You know, he's failed at getting the rock to stop the filter. He's bummed because he can't get out of the tank. He's let everyone down. He's distraught. He's in despair. He's done everything that he can do, everything he could possibly do. And then this pelican comes in and shares with him what his father has done to rescue him. Hey, Sharpay. I'm sorry, I couldn't stop this. No, I'm the one who should be sorry. I was so ready to get out. So ready to taste that ocean. I was willing to put you in harm's way to get there. Nothing should be worth that. I'm sorry I couldn't get you back to your father, kid. Hey, 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 hey! What the... Ah! Well, that's a long way to pull a tooth. (laughs) Darn kids. Well, good thing I pulled the right one. Hey, Prime Minister. (laughs) Oh, Nigel, you just missed an extraction. Oh, has he loosened the periodontal ligament with the elevator yet? What am I talking about? Nemo, where's Nemo? I've got to speak with him. What? What is it? Your dad's been fighting the entire ocean looking for you. My father? Really? Really? Oh, yeah. He's travelled hundreds of miles. He's been battling sharks and jellyfish, all sorts of... That can't be him. Are you sure? What was his name? Uh, some sort of sport fish or something. Tuna? Uh, trout? Marlin? That's it. Marlin, the little clownfish from the reef. It's my dad. He took on a shark. I heard he took on three. Three? Three? Three sharks? There's going to be 4,800 teeth. You see, kid, after you were taken by Diver Dan over there, your dad followed the boat you were on like a maniac. Really? He's swimming and he's swimming and he's giving it all this gold. And then three gigantic sharks capture him and he blows him up. And then dive starts to feed me. It's chased by a monster with huge teeth. He ties the steam to the rock. Once he gets a reward, he gets to battle an entire jellyfish forest. But now he's riding with a bunch of sea turtles on the East Australian current, and the word is he's headed this way right now to Sydney. Wow. Oh, what a good day. <laughs> he was looking for you after all, shark bait. Do you believe that your father in heaven has come for you? He has come to rescue you. He has gone to the lengths of killing his most beloved, perfect son, Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead so that you can have life with him. That you can be a part of his family. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of how much he loves you. Because of everything that he has done to include you in his family. The story of Jesus clearing the temple It's a picture of what Jesus has done. He has cleared the way. He has made the path clear for you to know him, to follow him, to experience his love. Easter is an invitation to life. Easter is a reminder that the Father has come to rescue you. Easter is a gift to be received, not to be earned. Let's stand. Now I'm going to pray for us and close the service. We're going to have coffee and we'll be able to hang out afterwards and take pictures of the cross. But before we do that, we normally have ministry at the end of our service because it's the guest service. It's Easter. I'm just going to pray for us where we are. 
what we believe at River City Church is that we can hear all the right information, we can know all the right information in our head, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit that transforms our heart. And our desire in this service, like every service at River State Church, is that you would leave changed, that you would be reminded the love that the Father has for you and the invitation that he's extended through Jesus Christ to be in a relationship with him. And if you've never begun a relationship with Jesus, or if this is the first time that you've really come to believe that the Father not only loves me, but he likes me, and I want to be a part of his family, that I'm going to leave room in the prayer for you to just begin that journey with him. All you have to say is, Jesus, I want to follow you, or I receive this gift of whatever, Easter, that he's talking about of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have battled and that you have fought for us and that you have come to rescue us through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Not because you expect us to now start doing things or stop doing things, but because you love us, that you love us and you want to be in a relationship with us. You, wanna, you want us in your family You want to relieve us of the burdens and the pressures and the failures of this world so that we can experience the freedom and the life that Jesus has died to give us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and help us to receive a deeper measure of this gift if we already know you. But for those of us in the room that don't know you, we've maybe come to know you just this morning for the first time, we pray that you would come and lead us to Jesus Just come, Holy Spirit, that we would freely receive this gift that you have died to give us, this gift of life, and that we would choose to follow you this morning. Again, we thank you, Father, that you love us, that you've sent Jesus to die for us. As he is risen, we too have been given the opportunity to rise with him to find life to the full. In his name we pray, amen.